Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. Uh, this is our season recap. The Orioles just ended their season on Sunday, and we're recording this show on Wednesday. Overall, the team uh, exceeded expectations this season by going 25-35. and 35. Along the way, and what was a true highlight for us as a prospects-focused uh, podcast, was the debut of several of the team's top prospects, including Ryan Mountcastle, Keegan Aiken, and Dean Kramer. Uh, all of whom had varying degrees of success in their first runs in the major leagues, and by the way, maintained their rookie status going into 2021. So something to watch for in very, very early uh, American League Rookie of the Year voting with those three guys. But um, we'll talk about that a little bit. In addition, we're going to get into a very, very early look at the 2021 draft and a player that the Orioles are being linked to in a Baseball America mock draft. And Bob is going to give us a recap of our predictions. Uh, there was an episode back in July where we did a whole bunch of predictions. I honestly lost count of how many we did. I think Bob had to put like 50 questions uh, back, listening back through the transcript. But we uh, one was a little bit of everything. We predicted the World Series. We predicted the standings in the American League East. But then we did some prospect-related stuff that's going to be fun to revisit here later on. But uh, first, a quick look at how the season unfolded. Uh, as I mentioned, the Orioles go 25-35 and 35 this year. That's good for fourth in the American League East, ahead of only the last-place Boston Red Sox, and behind three playoff teams in this uh, season where 16 teams are going into the playoffs. The Rays win the division, followed by the Yankees in second, and the Toronto Blue Jays in third, uh, with the Orioles coming in fourth. The main highlight this year, um, Anthony Santander broke out with a big year that unfortunately ended early because of an injury. He was named most valuable Oriole, and I think for a lot of people, the three of us included, certainly raised his stock going forward. I think everybody now has a clear vision of him as an everyday player at the major league level and someone the Orioles, one way or another, regardless of whether he's on the team uh, when they compete again or if he's traded before his contract is up, and brings back a lot of prospects in return. He looks like a guy that's going to have a big impact on the team's future. Uh, Ryan Malcastle, after weeks of us calling for him to be in the major leagues, came up uh, mid to late August and really exceeded expectations. Not only did he hit, as was expected, but he showed improved plate discipline and then played an adequate left field before sliding over to first base once Austin Hayes came off the injured list. Did a great job. Uh, Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken debuted. Both of them are in line to be in the rotation next year. Um, some ups and downs for both of them, but I think overall looked promising. 
And then Austin Hayes, who got off to a really, really slow start, went on the injured list, and then came back and hit really well once he was back. So he looks like he's in line to be an everyday player next year. Um, so that's some of the highlights for me, but I'll uh, throw it over to Bob. What were your thoughts on the 2020 season? I think it's a season you can't complain about overall. I mean, before all the exciting young guys came up, we stayed in games. We, you know, we hung around playoff contention, even though 90% of teams made it into the playoffs until pretty late in the season, 40 games in, almost two, like two thirds way through the season. We were right there in playoff contention. And then we unfortunately fell off. But once we did, it seemed like everybody that was having success on the team were the guys that you would want to see have success. Ryan Mountcastle came up, hit the cover off the ball. Austin Hayes comes off the IL. He starts hitting like he did last September. You see the young pitchers come up like Kramer, Aiken. Even Bruce Zimmerman had a nice appearance his last game out of the bullpen. It's just a, it was a season that it was more entertaining from game to game than I think everyone thought it would be coming in. But it also was a great sign for the future where the young guys that are going to be a part of this team for the years to come actually showed improvement and success at the major league level. And to top it all off, we got a top five draft pick, which is, you know, we can keep building towards the future. That's surprising. We got quality games. We got playoff potential games. We got uh, prospects coming up and showing off at the major league level. And we still got a top five pick. I think that's exactly what Orioles fans uh, could have hoped for this year. Uh, I think for me overall, yeah, it was a great year, I think, compared to what I was expecting. Um, there's a lot of bad baseball uh, on most nights, but still I think the good outweighed the bad this year. Just overall, the bullpen was something that I really enjoyed watching. This Orioles bullpen finished in, uh, sixth or seventh in Major League Baseball and combined wins above replacement 3.0. They had a 3.90 team ERA, and that's something that I don't think any of us imagined. I think that was a storyline a lot of us were interested to follow, but I didn't think they would be that good this year. Uh, they were good enough to where we were able to ship off middle relievers, guys like Miguel Castro, to get three brand new top 30 prospects. We didn't have a minor league season. We had a shortened draft, but the Orioles were able to climb up the rankings since now the number eight, according to MLB Pipeline, as far as farm system ranking goes with uh, Taron Vavra, Tyler Nevin, uh, Kevin Smith all entering the top 30, plus that draft class is going to be a lot of fun to watch. Um, you know, we saw guys kind of rise from the dead. Cedric Mullins, I think pretty much everyone had written him off, and now he's, a lot of people I think see him as a valuable contributor. Um, the smile's back. It's something that I've missed watching him. He's a lot of fun to watch. Austin Hayes, again, is keeping us interested with that hot finish. Uh, and, and John Means was another one, too, that I think I was getting really concerned about John Means. You know, the question was, was his rookie season a fluke? Uh, he kind of came out of nowhere, uh, just kind of a middling prospect who was ready to walk away from the game. And now he's an all-star. Uh, and was that for real or not? And I think we saw with those last four outings that it was definitely for real. So overall, great season. Uh, excited for next year. I think there's genuine optimism around this team. And hopefully this just carries into 2021. Yeah, this is the first time in a while that I've come off of an Orioles season feeling optimistic about what was to come in the following year. Um, just because not only did we see the top prospects or some of the top prospects emerge, but then, as you both mentioned, we saw some guys that people had written off a little bit. Um, Cedric Mullins, to me, at the very least, looks like a major league center fielder on defense now, which is not something I could have said in 2018 or 2019. The bat 
long, you know, over 162 game season, I still have questions about how it's going to play. But if nothing else, the guy is going to be a serviceable major league player in some capacity. And I think it gives the Orioles a lot more flexibility now on what to do with Austin Hayes. Because as, as it is, I think that the team probably goes into 2021 with Hayes, Hayes in left, Mullins in center, and then Ryan Malcastle probably getting at bats between first base D8s in left field. Yeah, I think Cedric Mullins for sure. Like the offense was still kind of a little bit below league average, right around in league average in some aspects. But you know that glove was definitely you. You saw a lot of people talk about that in these broadcasts, and Brandon Hyde mentioned it that it's Gold Glove worthy defense out there in center field, and I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, Austin Hayes looked really good out there in left field. Um, you know Santander, we saw really improved out in right field. So you know you have you really have to be worried about what Trey Mancini's health is going to be next year, and is he really going to play the outfield? How much is he going to play in general? So I do think if you're able to have remove some of these pieces like a Chris Davis and open up first base, DH a little more, and you can have Hayes, Mullins, Santander, and Mountcastle all in that lineup, I think that's a, something really interesting and uh, a fun lineup for Orioles fans. And even if Mullins isn't, at the level where he's going to be starting when we're a contending team again, that is a very, very valuable piece to have on the bench. A guy that can come in in a pinch and play gold glove caliber center field, fly around the bases, give you a bun hit, and even, you know, lace a double down the line or something like that. Plus, you got Yusniel Diaz. He's right around the corner next year. DJ Stewart had a mini breakout before going back to not being able to hit, but you never know. This outfield. It's going to give some teams some problems, I think. Cleveland Indians, eat your heart out. <laughs> yeah, and I should mention, all three of us have news stories on Baltimore sports and life. Bob uh, posted his final three-up, three-down story of the 2020 season on Monday. Um, and I would encourage you, after you read Bob's story, to go into the message board thread for that. Bob posted the season-ending total for which players, how many times they were ranked up, and how many times they were ranked down. So, Bob, when you were putting that part of this together, aside from your story, which ended a really good run of three-up, three-down articles for the year, what was the biggest surprise to you? I think it was that, well, there was a, and I was, I was something I was not planning to do, but then in the spur of the moment, I thought it would be fun, and it was. Um, I, it's not surprising that Hinato Nunez was two up and two down, because that guy is a roller coaster of streakiness. Uh, same with Pedro Severino. His first month playing was outstanding. Second month was a travesty to baseball. But um, I'm trying to think the most surprising one. I guess that Anthony Santander was a two up, one down. I thought he would have been more up, and I don't remember him having a down week, but uh must have just slipped my mind. I thought it was very encouraging that Ryan Mattcastle was three up, zero down. Like, he came in and, you know, just was dominating this team, leading us to middling results. But how about you? Did you see anything that stood out? I think for me, it was a, like you said, Malcastle was three up, never down, and actually ended up leading the team and being up, which you wouldn't expect from a guy that didn't was not on the roster on opening day, didn't come up until about a month into the season. And I think we knew that Malcastle was going to be scrutinized one way or another, that, you know, oh, he looks good at the plate, but he doesn't look good in the field, or he's hitting home runs, but he's striking out too much. I think that's kind of what we were thinking was going to happen with Mountcastle, and it didn't. 
There really was not a glaring... You know, there were times where I thought he was a little bit too aggressive at the plate in certain at-bats, but I can't really say that I come away from this season, even though it's a small sample size, believing, oh, this guy has these glaring flaws in his game. Um, maybe he's not the player we thought he was. I actually am starting to question now if they underestimated him a little bit. And it's interesting to me that I think his lowest OPS, if you go by week, was the last week of the season, and he still hit 364. He just didn't hit for any power that week for some reason. So that's pretty encouraging. So Nick uh, also has a story up. Uh, headline, I think, really says it all. Orioles 2020 season of success on multiple fronts. And, Nick, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about something that we really don't discuss much on this show, which is the role that Brandon Hyde plays as manager. Um, it seemed like reading your piece, you came away with a different take on Brandon Hyde this year based on what you had in the past. Yeah, I mean, just a little bit. Um, you know, I just made a little note at the end of the article about my per- new personal opinion about Brandon Hyde. Uh, I don't think, you know, the Orioles haven't really played in truly competitive baseball games since he's been the manager. Uh, they may not play in a lot of competitive games next year either. And I think that's where you start to see managers separate themselves. How can you manage this team uh, when you're fighting for a playoff spot? And we don't know that with Brandon Hyde. We haven't really had to see him make a lot of tough, tough decisions. But just overall, I think I viewed Brandon Hyde when he was initially hired as just a placeholder, a guy, a a cheap option that the Orioles are going to put in to get through this rebuild. And then once there's a good roster in place, uh, open up the checkbook, bring in another big personality, big type manager, uh, someone with experience that can lead this team, take them over the hump and get them into the World Series. I'm not saying at all that, that Brandon Hyde is going to be that guy, but I think my respect for Brandon Hyde is definitely uh, a lot higher this year. I think he did a fantastic job uh, with this lineup. 25 and 35 record. I don't think any of us expected that. Um, just personally, I like how he was always out there in that top step fighting for his guys. A lot of nights, you know, he was up there arguing balls and strikes. We saw him get thrown out, I think once, maybe twice. I can't remember how many. Um, but, you know, I like that in a manager. He's not just sitting back. He's not pulling a Jace Tingler and throwing his guy under the bus because he hit a grand slam on a 3-0 pitch. Like, he's fighting for his guys out there. Whatever he said to John Means, we will never know as much as we all want to know. But whatever he said must have worked. And, and I think, you know, just what he was able to do with the talent on this roster, um, I think was impressive. So I've been giving him a lot more credit than than I have in the past, and I'm excited for him to lead this team next year and see what he can do. Results aside, I think it's safe to say on a year that was just so tumultuous, so many things going wrong, Santander and Dwight Smith Jr. testing positive for coronavirus coming into the summer camp, he kept these guys fighting and competing every single night out. No matter what, if they got blown out the night before, they still showed up and played their hearts out the next day, and that continued – Maybe into the last week of the season. I mean, that that is tough to do. You saw a lot of teams out there, like, I don't know. I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but I guarantee it's true that there's teams out there that they just couldn't keep the focus, you know. I think I saw a story about some players saying that this season is more exhausting than a full 162-game season. And the Orioles came out, showed up every single night ready to play. And you can't ask for much more than that. For me, from a manager, strategy can always be learned, but just getting a clubhouse behind you, that's something that just comes naturally. Yeah, and I think we'll see going forward um, how Hyde fits into the team's long-term plans. But I think my initial impression of Hyde was similar to Nick's, where 
they're bringing him in because he's the best fit for where this team is right now, but will he be here when the time comes to take them to the next level? Based on what I saw this year, I think he is the guy that can certainly boost them and get them to the next level. As time goes on, we'll see how he does managing, you know, a playoff stretch, managing players as they get further into their careers, uh, trying to break rookies into a veteran clubhouse. A lot of the nuances that we really have not seen yet from him just because of where the Orioles are in their rebuild, but I certainly see a little bit more of a future for him as a manager. I think the biggest testament is even Chris Davis has nice things to say about him. <laughs> so that says a lot. You got Chris uh, Davis out of the way now. You know, Brandon <laughs> High can do his thing, and so you don't have to worry about Chris Davis and uh, watching his back there. So you never know. <laughs> well, uh, in addition to Bob and Nick's uh, pieces, I had a story up on uh, Tuesday with a very early look at the Rule 5 draft, and I know this is something we're going to discuss on a future show, but the class of first-year eligible players uh, this offseason is really stacked. I counted seven out of the top 30 as of July are Rule 5 eligible for the first time. And then you have some guys that had been Rule 5 eligible in the past that are notable, uh, Brian Gonzalez in particular. So there's going to be some names to watch, and I know that's something we're going to get into more on a future show. But uh, visit BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for that story as well as the Knicks recap of the season, Bob's three-up, three-down piece, and then some uh, NBA, Ravens, and college sports coverage. So a little bit of everything over at Baltimore Sports and Life, and hop on the discussion board while you're there. Um, now, if you follow us on Twitter, at BSL on the Verge, you saw that we tweeted Baseball America's very early mock draft. Baseball America does have a preliminary draft order up on its site, and the reason that I say it's preliminary is that there's still a lot of things that are uncertain about how the 2021 draft order is going to look, whether it's going to follow the standings, whether anything in the postseason could determine <clears throat> tiebreakers, how the postseason, if at all, is going to affect the draft order. So there's a lot of things that have still not been sorted out, but for now it looks like the Orioles um, are going to have a very early pick. Baseball America has them picking fifth overall, and in their first – their Mock draft uh, published earlier this week. They had the Orioles taking outfielder Judd Fabian out of Florida. Um, if you saw the last draft, you know Michael Elias likes SEC uh, prospects. Fabian really does seem to fit the mold, Nick, doesn't he, of the sort of uh, polished SEC up-the-middle athlete that Michael Elias might go for? Again, he's not a pitcher. That's that's the key thing. No, he's... I, I like I love the pick. Uh, he's someone at the top of my list for sure to to watch closely. Assuming we get a, a normal college baseball season come February, uh, but you know again it's a very very early. You know college programs are still struggling to get fall practices off the ground because we still live in a world kind of run by COVID at, at the moment. But Fabian himself, extremely young when he came on the campus at University of Florida, and as a true freshman played in fifty six games. Uh, hit seven home runs with 764 OPS, went to the Cape Cod League as an 18-year-old and hit six home runs in 35 games with an OPS of 850. So, I mean, the kid has faced off against elite competition at a very young age and excelled. Uh, University of Florida only got in 17 games before the season ended, and he was already at five home runs with an OPS over 1,000. Um, you know, he's someone – I've only watched one game of his – 
but he's still someone, if you read uh, multiple scouting reports on him, he's someone that a lot of the, the people that are much more knowledgeable about prospects than I am agree that this is a guy who doesn't have a standout tool, but he does everything really, really well. And he's kind of a guy who, at his peak, is a multi-time all-star outfielder. Um, a lot of comps that I've seen uh, put a Mitch Hanniger comp on him, outfielder for the Mariners, as a guy who hits 270, 280 with 30 home runs a year. And, and if that's the type of player that Judge Fabian is, that's great. But, you know, yeah, it's very early, but you like that, that early pick there of an SEC outfielder. Forget about the position. We had a lot of comments about that when I posted the, that story about the outfielder, and I understand that. But at the same time, with the MLB draft, you take best player available. I don't care who it is. We talked about the short stops all the time. Uh, you'll find a home for Judd Fabian somewhere. This, this is a, a special talent. So, yeah, not surprising to see a college bat would be our pick. I don't care what pick number we have. Uh, Fabian seems as as good as any. I would go with. McLean, as my guess, I forget his first name. He's a LSU shortstop, but SEC hitter that can play up the center of the field on defense. I think that's a perfect recipe for what Elias and company have in store. I don't know a ton about him personally, but I've read a, a couple scouting reports, and he seems like a fine choice this early in the in the mock season. Yeah, there's a lot of unknowns. Um, just aside from. Uh... The typical college, you know, the typical uh, draft process because you can put a mock draft out now in any year, and by April it could look completely different, and then from April to June it could change. Next year the draft will be in July, so I don't know if that's going to affect anything uh, in terms of how often we see that the consensus change on the mock drafts. But there's obviously still the question of whether the amateur baseball seasons in the spring, both of the college and high school level, are going to unfold. Um, as usual because of the pandemic. Uh, we still don't have the answer to that question, but if nothing else, I think Fabian is the guy that we see early on that is going to be linked to the Orioles, and I would expect, especially now that we know the Orioles probably aren't going to be in line for uh, Kumar Rocker, uh, unless the teams in front of them pass on him, which I highly doubt. Uh, this gives us a name to really watch going into the spring. Yeah, well, Kumar Rocker's teammate, Jack Leiter, was uh, Baseball America has tapped him at number six to the Diamondbacks. So he could still get a Vanderbilt pitcher. Who knows? But yeah, I think, uh, and also, you know, we know that the draft, I believe they announced, is going to be during the All Star break next year. And it's going to be at least 20 rounds, is what they're saying right now. So that's good. It's another opportunity for Michael Elias to add a lot of names uh, to this organization and continue to fill up that pipeline down there in the minor leagues. So we'll keep an eye on that as the offseason unfolds, and as we head into the spring, we'll see where exactly where the Orioles are going to pick in the draft, and if Fabian is a guy that continues to be linked to them, or if other prospects uh, start entering the mix as players that could line up with the Orioles. Um, but we're going to look back now on a so we did in July, where we made predictions for the 2020 season. Um, as I said at the beginning of this show, I can't remember how many categories we did. Um, so, but we're going to have a lot to sort through here and I'm going to turn it over to Bob who did the hard work of going back and listening to that episode and actually transcribing the predictions because we said it in that episode, we would read our predictions on air when the time came and now the time has come. So I'll turn it over to Bob. Yeah. It's time to reap what we sow. (laughs) I don't know the saying, uh, I think we end up doing like 15 or so of these predictions and, uh, definitely some of the results are 
are interesting. So let's get right into it. The first one was uh, which prospect eligible players will finish with the most at bats and also who will finish with the most innings pitched. And I might have transcribed the questions and answers, but I definitely didn't uh, do the research into who the actual winners of these categories are. So we might have to do some work on the fly. I'm not sure. Um, Nick, you went with Ryan Mountcastle and Keegan Aiken as your choices. Me and Zach both took Austin Hayes for most at-bats. Zach took Keegan Aiken, and I took Hunter Harvey for most innings pitch. That was a terrible choice. Uh, Let's break this down. I believe Mountcastle probably had the most at-bats. Yeah, I have the... the invaluable baseball reference in front of me right now. Oh, Ryan Mountcastle <laughs> finishes four more bats on the season than Austin Hayes. One twenty six to one point to Nick. Okay. Hey. The, the pitching is a little more interesting. Uh is it, it might it probably is Aiken, isn't it? Uh yes it is. Twenty five and two thirds innings pits by Keegan Aiken. Yeah, I would imagine Kramer was right up there. Maybe Dylan Tate. All right. Good thing Ryan Mountcastle didn't keep that 10% walk rate, or it would have been Austin Hayes. <laughs> yeah. And he would have been not eligible to be Rookie of the Year <laughs> next year. That is true. <laughs> well, here's um, Cole Salster, who I don't think was on our radar as a prospect-eligible no, yeah. player, through 22 and two-thirds innings this year. Okay. Um, Travis Lakins, whose rookie eligibility remains intact through the 2020 season, Finishes three more. He actually tied Keegan Aiken, 25 and two-thirds innings. That's interesting. I didn't know he was rookie eligible. We're, but, going, we're going with Aiken. Yeah, we'll yeah, give we'll, it to we'll Aiken. Aiken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so the second question was, who will lead the team in home runs, and how many will they hit? Um, I went with Rio Ruiz, the dark horse, looked strong early on in the season. Fell off a cliff a little bit towards the end. I said 12. I might have been on the money with the number, 12 home runs. But uh, Nick and Zach, you both went with Renato Nunez with 16 and 17 home runs, respectively. So Nunez did lead the team. He finished with 12. Anthony Santander would have probably passed him, uh, if not for the injury, because he finished second with 11. And then in third was Rio Ruiz. Over the first week of the season, I thought Bob was going to end up winning that. <laughs> Streaky Ruiz strikes again, but hey, we'll, we'll call that one an even split. Well, no, no, I'm going to give that point to Bob because he, he did get the number right, at least. That's yeah, more impressive. That's, <laughs> that's more important. No. Uh, yeah, credit to us all there. We'll, we'll take the kudos. Next question is, who will be the most surprising player to appear in a game? Now... I went for shock value and picked Adley Rutschman. That was a, a dumb response, and uh, I should be punished for that. But, Zach, you went with Michael Bauman, which could have happened if he didn't get injured. And, Nick, again, perfect once more. Dilson Herrera, <laughs> out of nowhere. I went by default. <laughs> he was 0 for 6. <laughs> hey, he got in there. He showed up on the team. Uh, next question was breakout star that comes over from the ultimate roster. You guys both went with Isaac Matson, which I was hoping we would see, and he might have broke out if he actually did appear in a game for the Orioles, but I think I have to win by default because I picked Mason Williams, who I think performed terribly in the few games that he was there, but at least he was on the team. 
That's all right. We got Ryan Malcastle, <laughs> Keegan Aiken, Kramer. We we got enough breakout stars yeah, that came over. <laughs> this is true. All right. We said we'll use Neil Diaz or Ryan McKenna appear for the Orioles in 2020. We all said no to Diaz and yes to McKenna. Obviously, we know the answer was no to both. So, swing and a miss. Uh, will and Oriole be in the top three of Rookie of the Year voting? I was the only one that said yes. I said Austin Hayes. Uh, I might be right on the yes because Ryan Mountcastle might get some votes. Potentially top three, but it's not going to be Austin Hayes. He has removed his rookie eligibility. Yeah, I think it's obviously Kyle Lewis or Luis Robert at one and two. And I think if you're following Baseball America, they've been keeping track of it kind of week by week. And they've had uh, uh, Houston Astros pitcher uh, Javier, Christian Javier, I believe, as their number three. But, yeah, I, I think Ryan Mountcastle definitely deserves some, some votes, and he'll probably finish top three, which if he doesn't, he definitely deserves it. All right. Next was, will Michael Givens be traded and to where? We all said yes, so that's a point for all of us. Uh, I said the New York Mets, which was pretty close. Miguel Castro went to the Mets. So I got a little bit mixed up there. Uh, Zach, you said to the Phillies. And Nick, you kind of try to go vague with a <laughs> random NL East team or the Diamondbacks. Still missed. You were <laughs> kind of right. You got an NL West team if you kind of mix together your answers. Uh, it is surprising looking back how active the trade deadline was. Um, biggest Orioles prospect storyline of the season. Me and Zach both said Ryan Mountcastle. I think we said, like, no matter what, if he comes up or not, he's going to be the biggest story. And it kind of was that way where in the beginning it's like, when are we getting Mountcastle? When are we getting Mountcastle? And as soon as he showed up, he was like talk of the town the rest of the season. Nick, you went with Hunter, Hunter Harvey, which not too wrong. I mean, he was on the IL, so it's like, is he going to stay healthy? He had a little bit of struggles, so it's will he be the Hunter Harvey of last year? It was a pretty quiet year for him. <laughs> Eight and uh, two-thirds innings pitched. I think he's still eligible to be Rookie of the Year next year, so fingers crossed. Does any discussion on the mullet give points to Hunter Harvey? <laughs> the fact this, that he's cutting it is... <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. Maybe that's the answer to all his issues. Uh, will Ryan Macos will be in the lineup in the final game of the season and at what position? We all said yes. We were all right. You guys said left field. I said DH. I think he started at first base, though, in actuality. So we were all wrong. Orioles MVP. I picked Anthony Santander. I was the only one to pick him as the MVP, and you guys each picked Hanser Alberto. Which, yeah. if you can't, if it was a one-month season, that might have happened. Knowing, looking back now, do you guys agree with the Santander as the MVO, or would you have gone Iglesias? I personally would have gone Iglesias. I just feel like, I don't know, that maybe that that was a huge surprise. The value he put up on offense, without even being able to play his typical. Gold Glove defense. I just think he was lacing the ball all season long. For me, it's a toss-up. I think Santander would have been the hands-down undisputed most valuable Oriole um, had he played even just 10 more games than he did. 
Um, I guess that I would stick with him just because Iglesias also was kind of banged up at certain points, um, and he de-aced a little bit more than I expected. But it it's a close call. I mean, Iglesias really had a good year, and I think if nothing else, uh, we saw the first successful major league signing, or the first like big major league signing from Michael Eliasson. Yeah, for sure. That's going to be the easiest. I've said it multiple times. It's going to be the easiest offseason decision is picking up that option for Jose Iglesias. And I, and I like, I think one of the broadcasts, I believe it was, where I don't remember who was talking about it, but the, the impact that Iglesias has had in the dugout with some of these younger Orioles. And that's the complete opposite of, you know, what they were telling us about Iglesias uh, during the offseason, that the Orioles had already done their homework on him years ago and said he wasn't going to be a clubhouse fit. That wasn't someone they wanted. So I think the narrative's changed about him. And that's it was a great year for Iglesias, but yeah, I'm going Santander. I think they made the right pick. Yeah, if uh, Elias can get the value out of Iglesias, just wait till he signs someone to a 10-year, $200 million contract. Uh, best Orioles pitcher on the season. I don't even know who that would be, but me and Nick, we both picked Alex Cobb, while Zach picked John Means. It, it was pretty close. I mean, Cobb had a the lowest ERA, I think, of the guys that started the majority of the games. But John Means came on so strong, I feel like he he should probably get the nod as far as Orioles Cy Young. Yeah, that turnaround is pretty special. I think you got to give it to John Means for sure, the way he ended that year. Yeah, and even, I mean, Kramer and Aiken pitched good, but not, not enough for the season, I would say. Orioles Rookie of the Year. We all picked Austin Hayes. We didn't see that slow start and injury stint coming, I guess. has to be Ryan Mountcastle, I would assume, but the pitchers gave a run for the money, too. Sure. No question on Mountcastle. I remember when that question came up with the predictions. I was kind of torn between Mountcastle and Hayes, but I kept thinking Hayes is already on the opening day roster. We know that he's going to be good on defense whereas the defense was still kind of an open question with Mountcastle. Um, but I didn't see the capability in left field coming that we saw, and I didn't see the improved date plate discipline coming. I think if I had seen both of those things coming, I might have picked Mountcastle over Hayes, but Hayes was on the roster right away, so he seemed like the safer bet. Yeah, for me it was just when is Mountcastle going to debut is it going to be too late for him to make an impact and obviously not most surprising oriole nick went with miguel castro which he started the year super strong and he did net us a potential back end of the rotation starter in kevin smith down the line so that was pretty surprising zach went with tanner scott i think that has to be the winner there tanner scott has become you know, a back end of the bullpen guy, potentially the next closer for the next contending Orioles team. We don't need to talk about who I went with, but it's Cody Carroll. You know, biggest surprise as far as his major league career is over, potentially. But uh, good job there, you guys. We all went bullpen, though. Like like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I think that was something that we were all excited for. And at least they proved us right, whether it's through trades or pitching with guys like Tanner Scott and Dylan Tate. A lot of improvements there. And even the guys, when they did trade, the, the guys that were performing out of the bullpen, it seemed like the people that stepped in their place were uh, pitched mm-hmm. just as well. Most disappointing, I went with Renato Nunez. 
I guess it could be argued that he was disappointing, but I think that's pretty much what you could have expected from him coming into the year. And you guys each went with Chance Cisco, which he started the year pretty strong. Uh, didn't have the best last month, just like Pedro Severino. But what do you guys think about Chance? My outlook on him, I think, is slightly better than it was coming into the season. I thought that the overall plate approach looked a little bit better. I still can't quite wrap my head around why he struggles with contact much more than I ever thought he would uh, coming up in the minors, because I thought of nothing else he would be a contact hitter at the major league level. Um, the defense this year was better, but not good enough that I would necessarily feel comfortable trading Pedro Severino in the offseason, having Cisco start every game next year, and feeling like I'm set at catcher. Um, now, if you get a good offer for Severino, obviously, and I know in the last show we talked about if you got Miguel Castro-type packets for Severino, you would probably feel comfortable dealing him. But I still don't know that even if Severino were traded, I would look at Cisco as a full-time guy. Yeah, I'm going with Chris Davis because you have to mention Chris Davis because we are an Orioles podcast. And <laughs> Spring Training 1.0, Chris Davis told us, showed us that uh, he was back to his all-star caliber ways, and he failed. So there you go. This we pandemic, <laughs> it ruined a lot of things, and the Chris Davis redemption tour is number one amongst them. Yeah, uh, if, you could... <laughs> if I had to look at who was most disappointing, I would put Chris Davis out there. But I would also kind of throw in Astro Wozahowski. Not just that I had tremendous expectations for what he could do, but almost on an inning-to-inning basis within his outings, I would watch him and think they need to get him off the roster tomorrow. Or feel like, oh, this guy's on the verge of a turnaround. And I thought the move to the bullpen was going to lead to that, and it didn't happen. Yeah, I agree with that. And it looked like for a while it would be John Means as most disappointing, but he ends up winning the Cy Young. Uh, our World Series picks. <laughs> Only one of us has a team in the World Series that has been eliminated, and I'm sorry to say <laughs> that to you, Nick, with uh, the Twins who have lost 18 consecutive playoff games somehow. Uh, you had the Dodgers beating them in the World Series. Uh, Zach, you had the Dodgers winning the World Series as well, except over the Tampa Bay Rays. Certainly seems possible. You got both one seeds there. And I took the Tampa Bay Rays over the Atlanta Braves, which is still alive, but I think a long shot to happen. But we will see about that. Twins. Any revised predictions for you guys now that the playoffs are actually here? I like the Rays. I think I'm going to go with them out of the AL I because I cannot pick the Yankees, uh, no matter how well they're going to play, even if they knocked around Shane Bieber last night, which is hard to watch. Um that game made me watch the debate last night, uh, to be totally honest. Uh, I'm going, yeah, I'm going to go Dodgers over Rays. Keeping the Dodgers there. I'll stick with my pick. Um, they're the number one seeds, as you mentioned, Bob. I see no reason to change it. Um, I do think, though, that didn't we make the World Series prediction when we thought it was only going to be a 10-team postseason? Sounds about right. So let me <laughs> let me ask both of you this. If you had known that more than half the league was going to be playing in the playoffs, would your pick have been different? I don't think so for me. You add Mookie Betts to the Dodgers, that's just the rich getting richer. And I really did think the Twins, you know, I, <laughs> as much as they lose in the playoffs and that postseason record is atrocious, I really did like the pickup of Kenta Maeda. I thought it was one of the most underrated signings of the offseason. 
And they brought in Josh Donaldson, but you know Donaldson pretty much didn't play at all this year, so I still would have stuck with Dodgers Twins there. I mean, Maeda pitched pretty well this year. Yeah. You know, if, if it wasn't for Bieber, he could have been Cy Young. Um, I don't know. I think I would probably went with the same choices. I don't think either of the teams that I picked were like scraping by the skin of their teeth, or I don't know. And it, it's hard to change your mind once you. You can't look like you're switching things up too much. But if I had to say who I'm rooting for now with these expanded playoffs, I want to see the Padres over the White Sox in the World Series. That would be a lot of fun. Um, On the prediction show, we predicted the AL East order. I think that would be a little too boring to just read out all of our choices without much context. But um, I was the only one who took the Rays to have first place in the AL East. But then I also picked the Red Sox to finish third. So... It kind of cancels each other out there. And the last question we had is, will the entire season be played? I guess we'll see if they get through the playoffs, but it certainly looks like that is most likely going to happen, luckily for us. Well, everyone except the Cardinals. They only got 58 games in. (laughs) Yeah, doesn't count. And yet they're in the playoffs. (laughs) Yeah. That's it. We'll have to see if we can do better next year. Yeah, we got to uh, figure out where our predictions are going to be for next year because I think we're going to be able to throw a lot of different stuff in because probably more Orioles in the running for Rookie of the Year next year as far as preseason predictions go. With Mal Castle, Aiken, Kramer, maybe Diaz if you're optimistic that he makes it up by June 1st. That or Adley Rutschman. Adley Rutschman if we sign him to an extension before <laughs> opening day so he can start right away. That would be fantastic. All right, here's Thanks. a prediction. First prediction for next year. How many games are played in the MLB regular season in 2021? Mm. Zach. I'm going to go 162. Um, the two questions that I have are, will fans be allowed on opening day? And if so, will it be full capacity? That's something I have no clue how to answer yet, but it's still something that I'm not confident would be at full capacity by April. Um, and then would the first maybe two months of the season need to be reworked to more closely resemble this year's schedule so the teams don't travel until sometime in the summer. But yeah, my guess is now they've worked their way through the 60-game season somehow, they'll find a way to play 162 games. Yeah, I think you're going to have 162 games for sure. I think the NHL might have. I don't really follow the NHL, but I think they've already said, like, we're not playing in a bubble next year. That's a definite no-go. So I think teams are, the leagues as a whole are better equipped, uh, even if COVID's not going to go anywhere anytime soon, which it isn't. I think teams are better equipped now um, how to handle this. MLB, I'm not going to give MLB the credit. I'm going to give the teams the credit for for pulling off this year. Uh, They did a great job. Um, we're going to see 162 games. We're probably going to see 16 playoff teams again for sure next year. Uh, I think the bigger question is, are there going to be fans or not? Um, they just announced before we started recording that there are going to be fans in Texas for the championship series and the World Series. I think around 11,000 or so is what they're saying. So, um, you know, I think that's the bigger question. Are there going to be fans or not? But I think for sure we're, we're going back to 162 games. At least I hope so. Yeah, I really hope so. I just wonder if they're going to go down to like 154 just to build in some extra off days because of all these double headers that they had to deal with this year i just wonder if or maybe they'll still have 162 games but they'll kind of space it out more maybe start a little earlier or end a little later i don't know i don't know i'm hopefully this there's a vaccine by then and 
or at least that it's contained enough that it won't be as big of an issue. More importantly, I just want a minor league season. Yes, yeah, I think <laughs> all of us do. Um, so I'll throw these predictions out for the rule changes, whether or not they come back in 2021. Universal DHs, does it come back, Bob? It's around forever. Yeah, Pitchers absolutely. hitting, thing of the past. Yep. Pitchers hitting are dead, and it's great. <laughs> it's celebration time. Yeah, I'm going to predict that, too. Um, Seven-inning doubleheaders, are they the new normal, Nick, or do we go back to nine innings next year? Yeah, I think you go back to nine innings. As much as I love them, uh, they're quick and easy to watch. Uh, I enjoy them, but yeah, I think you, you don't see that many doubleheaders across the full season, a normal season, so I think you go back to nine innings. Yep, completely agree. Um, I think even Manfred was on John Heyman's podcast and said it was probably a thing of the past. At least I saw him tweet about it. I didn't actually listen, but yeah, I think that makes sense. If if the pandemic is in here, there's not you know 15 doubleheaders in three weeks or whatever it was. So yeah, I think they're gone. Yeah, I think that they'll go to nine inning doubleheaders as long as things with the pandemic are you know contained enough. Um, not only because they won't have to worry about having more doubleheaders, but then having four more innings of baseball keeps fans in the ballpark longer. And MLB is going to need all they can get from gate concessions revenue next year. So my guess is they go back to nine innings. Um, That's a good point. The runner on second base in extra innings, does it come back next year, Bob? And, oh, I'll throw this wrinkle in. If so, do we see it in the playoffs? Because this year we didn't. I do think it comes back. and. I'm, if you would have told me that I'd be all about it uh, coming you know, into this season, that I'd be hoping that it stayed, I would tell you you're crazy because I could see it for one season, but when things get back to normal, it's, let's not do that anymore. But I, I like it. I think it adds some extra entertaining value, and you don't get these 0-0 games into 13 innings like you had today in the playoffs against the Braves and the Reds. I do think it'll be back next year. I still don't think they're going to do it in the playoffs, though. I think... The long games in the playoffs, that's a little more exciting than in the middle of dog days of August when it's like the Pirates versus the Orioles and we're into 16 innings. I think in the playoffs, it's a little more acceptable. Yeah, I think if we would have recorded yesterday, I would have said, well, well, do I think it's going to come back? Yes, but do I want it back? If we would have recorded yesterday, I'd say no. But as I said before we started recording today, <laughs> that Braves-Reds game today, game one, changed my mind. Yeah, I, I actually didn't hate it. and But I do hate that I now have that opinion about it, that I was so adamant against it. And now that I'm like, eh, it's okay. And I also hate all the hype that people are giving this to like today's eight playoff games. Uh, I hate that people are so excited about it. I'm excited about it because Rob Manfred, you know, is excited about that. And all of this is coming back next year. It's, and I hate that. <laughs> I'm going to go, yes, that it will be back for the regular season. I was not a fan of it. I was not a fan on the base of having it, having seen it in a few minor league games in 2019. Uh, but I liked it a little bit better at the major league level than I thought I would. Um, my guess right now is that no, it's not in the playoffs. But I also wouldn't be shocked if MLB decided to do something weird and said it's starting in the 12th inning. The runner is going to be on second base or um, only in the wild card series, whatever they're calling the beginning of this wild card series, only in the wild card series, but not in everything else. I feel like they're going to do something weird like that. They're not just going to all out implement it. They'll do that later on if they're going to do it. 
But I feel like there's going to, if there is, if it's going to be in the playoffs next year, there will be some weird baby step in there. Yeah, that makes sense. How about how many playoff teams next year? It's going to be 16. Like 16? I just said, it's, yeah, you're going to see the money. I think you're going to, at worst, I think you see limited attendance, probably 50% attendance at games next year. Um, and and so, again, these teams are going to want that money to recoup that money from this year. So you're going to see the attendance if we have a full season. And I think you're going to keep seeing those 16 teams playoffs. It's more TV money. It's more gate money. Uh, and that's what these teams are going to want. So I, I think they're going to keep it. I think it's here to stay. And sub-500 teams in the playoffs are here to stay. I'm going to go yes, just because the precedent in major in all major sports, I think not just baseball, is generally that once these things come, they don't go away. Um, I would personally prefer to see an expanded postseason format where the team with the best record in both leagues gets a first-round bye, just proceeds right to the division series. Um, and maybe at some point MLB revisits that idea, but my guess is for 2021, we're looking at the exact same format we had in 2020. Yeah. So you can't have like the Brewers lose to back into the playoffs with a losing record and then take out the Dodgers, who are clearly the best team from opening day. You, as much as I'm rooting for that, for pure chaos to ensue, like you cannot have that happen in, in a professional sporting uh, league. So I think you've got to rework this somehow. If, if it is first-round buys or, or whatever it is, ex- Best of seven series all the way, best of five series all the way. I don't know, but you can't have best of three and, and put losing teams against the top teams in baseball. Not only that, the Brewers didn't spend a single day of the season above 500. So <laughs> that's great. No, I think it, it will probably be back just for next year. But I think once the, the negotiation for the Players Association in the league, I think they got to come down with either 12 or 14 playoff teams. I, I think it's crazy to have more teams in the playoffs than half of your league like maybe if they expand to 32 teams then i could see having 16 at least i'd still prefer to have like 14 and have like you said the one first one seed and maybe the first two seeds get a buy into the next round that would be ideal to me but money that's what drives everything so Mm -hmm. So we'll mark these predictions down and revisit them. Hopefully we'll actually have the set of rule changes out like well before the season starts next year so that by December or January on a podcast we can go through and figure out what rule changes are in place and which ones aren't. Uh, but we'll now have those marked down and we'll revisit them later on uh, this off season. Speaking of the off season, as you know, we recorded weekly during the regular season. Um, during the offseason, we're not going to be on quite a weekly schedule. Um, instead, what we're going to kind of do is base it around major news stories. So, say in the next two or three weeks, the Orioles make a trade, a couple of prospects come back, there is some news about the future of minor league baseball, whatever it is. Uh, we'll come on and we'll react to that. Um, but at a minimum, expect one show a month from us between now and spring training. And it will probably end up being a little bit more than that based on how things unfold over the offseason. Um, in addition to some of the things I mentioned that could pop up, I know we're going to probably devote a good bit of time um, in the coming months to the Rule 5 draft. Not only which players the Orioles are going to try to protect, but then if they pick anybody up, um, how that player could fit into the 2021 team. 
And then as certain roster moves break, we'll kind of get a sense of which prospects are lined up for 2021, which players could really uh, change the course of the roster. So there'll be a lot of different things for us to watch. Um, but we won't be doing this so weekly. We'll be doing it based around when there is a big news story. Um, but at minimum, expect one news show a month. Continue to follow us on Twitter at BSL um, on the Verge. Check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com and hop on the discussion board there. Uh, before we sign off, though, I'm going to see what Nick and Bob are watching. Uh, what's going to be the biggest story that you follow in the offseason? I'll start with you, Nick. I think it's going to be, I'm interested to see the Rule 5, who they or who they choose to protect, uh, who they let go, uh, or who they not let go, but you know leave vulnerable. Uh, obviously, as a minor league podcast, minor league guys, that's something that's very interesting to us. I think who who's the next big Jose Iglesias pickup for the Orioles this offseason? I don't think they're going to you know open up the checkbook for any big free agents. But uh, what kind of direction does Michael Ice take with this major league roster next year? Is Renato Nunez back? Is Rio Ruiz back? Uh, those are the kind of the bigger storylines I'm anxious to follow. Um, we do have a bit of breaking news here uh, as we were recording from Rock Cabaco that uh, Jose Flores, third base coach, and Doug Brocale, the pitching coach, are not returning next year. Uh, so Orioles are going to be looking for some new coaches uh, right now. Uh, I think Jose Flores was a, a, a target of some Orioles fans' kind of uh, disappointments throughout the year with some decisions to send some guys. But uh, interesting news there. But um, I think just overall, yeah, where does this team go? Who's still back next year? And, and I think uh, that's, that's about it. The curse of a third base coach. Never. It's like the starting quarterback. Never the fans' favorite. Uh, I would imagine they're going to bring in like a more analytics-driven pitching coach, a little bit younger guy, maybe the guy that we had in the minor leagues last year. But that'll be interesting to follow. Uh, to me, what I'm most interested in is the international free agent class. Not Obviously, I'm not going to know any of the names that are announced, but I just want to look at the bonus numbers and see. I want to see a start. We're not there yet to get like the top-of-the-line guys, but I just want to see us – start to creep towards the million dollar bonus range on a guy or two and just see the quality of that increase as we make more of a connection in that area and build these relationships up to compete with the rest of the league in that regard. Yeah, the international free agent market is going to be an area that I follow. And then um, Nick mentioned his piece of Rule 5. I just think the sheer volume of talent that is Rule 5 eligible for the first time this year is really interesting. Yusniel Diaz is the top of the class. He's obviously going to get a 40-man roster spot. I don't worry about the Orioles losing him. I fully expect Michael Ballman's going to get a roster spot. Uh, Ryland Bannon, Zach Lothar. Um, I, then I had Isaac Madsen and Zach Pop as locks in my story uh, to get 40-man spots. But I feel like regardless of how many maneuvers the Orioles make, they're at risk of losing a notable prospect. And what's really going to be interesting for me is we're going to learn a lot about how the organization evaluates these guys and then how much other teams could value their prospects. Um, like a guy like Mason McCoy's first time eligible um, this year. And I feel like in a typical offseason, McCoy might be a guy you add to the 40-man because he's close to major league ready and is so good with the glove. But he's far from a certainty, I think, to get a 40-man roster spot. Uh, Brian Gonzalez is another one where typical year – might be a guy that goes on, but no guarantees this time around. So that's something I'm really going to follow. Yeah. 
to the other 29 GMs that uh, listen to our podcast of all the other Major League Baseball teams, Brandon Hanify's not a great pitcher. You don't need him. <laughs> I'm joking because the Orioles aren't going to protect him. He's real fiological, and that's yeah. my guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a good problem to have. Look, you have the Tampa Bay Rays every year where they have this roster crunch, the 40-man roster crunch, where that's how we got Cole Saucer last, at the end of last season because they didn't have room for him on the 40-man, so they traded him to us. We tried to... Uh, pounce on that opportunity he didn't exactly pitch as good as we might have expected but it's not a bad thing when you have too much talent to contain it in your organization you can always use that to make trades or make some tough decisions and hope you chose wisely it's a good sign yeah absolutely and we'll be keeping an eye on that as long along with several other orioles mlb and prospect related developments um until we record our next show, as I mentioned, continue to follow us on Twitter at BSL on the birds. Um, that's a very active Twitter account with a lot of good content. So make sure you check it out. BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for all the latest Orioles, Ravens. I'm still bitter about Monday night, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Ravens, NBA, uh, college sports coverage, and more. Uh, check that out and visit the discussion board uh, weigh in and you can leave comments on our shows on our stories um, join in the discussion with other fans so a good time on the message board uh, for Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens this is Zach Spedden thank you for listening on the Verge <laughs>